Hey, Rod, it's happening. Organic deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm in L.A., man, so I'm like part hippie. But you, actually, this one you know because you, I think you use the same. Jason. Jason. Yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. I just didn't Jason expect you to it. say deodorant. I was expecting something else. But yeah, <laughs> organic keep going. Free bread. Organic deodorant. Spray on, guys. Organic deodorant. Yeah. It's money, man. Yeah. Like people don't understand the uh the aluminum Ugh. and especially the, uh, in antiperspirants. The aluminum and antiperspirants in particular. That stuff goes right in. Yeah. It's bad for and it. And actually there have been some recent studies that have been been talking about the uh the negative side effects of that over long term use. Yeah. I'll tell you, mm-hmm. it's um I tried a lot, like Burt's Bees and other things, and I'm not, you know, trying to be negative on those. But the 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 stick does it just makes me sweaty but the spray well, you know, that's the thing though like everybody like because i've read tons and tons of blogs and email or blogs and websites about people's top five organic deodorants and some love the sticks some love the sprays mm. i actually there's one stick that works for me i can't remember the name of it but only one mm. all the other ones were garbage yeah. for me but it's just it's you gotta, it's all personal you gotta try them but I and you love Jason. I just wish they had different scents. They do. I only what is it? It's like the pine forest. Yeah, they have the pine forest. They have like the cucumber, which I'm not a huge fan of the cucumber. I've never tried that. Yeah, um, but I think that might be the only two scents. But <laughs> I need more scents. <laughs> hey, you know, if you're if you're into not having aluminum, I think this is a good one. How did this yeah. become your shtick? Or my shtick. Well, you know, I'm flipping the game. I'm changing the game. <laughs> it was good. It was good. fan of the show and i'm here to introduce today's all new episode rodney and keith are diving into real and unscripted conversations they're not afraid to sit down and talk about the elephant in the room the conversations on this podcast are thought-provoking and completely raw they don't leave any stone unturned to get to the real story this is the first season of 2020 that they have dubbed a decade possible And season one is Pursuit. Remember, you can find all things More in Common at www.moreincommonpod.com. There you will find back episodes, merchandise, blogs, and a lot more. And definitely, if you enjoyed today's episode, give them a like in your favorite podcast app. Leave a review. It might just get read on the air. And please, share with your friends. On to today's episode with Nicole Davis. Former Olympian Nicole Davis speaks on the importance of believing in yourself in times of stress and uncertainty. She pushes her audience to embrace uncomfortable moments as a catalyst to improve themselves in any facet of life. Davis is a retired two-time Olympian and two-time silver medalist. She spent 11 years on the USA national volleyball team and played professional in eight different countries in Europe and Asia. 
She also helped lead her team in back-to-back NCAA championships in USC in 2002 and 2003. Davis currently works as a coach and expert on high performance and cultural development at a company co-founded by Pete Carroll and Dr. Mike Gervais. Her vision is to help accelerate the learning of others through her experiences in pursuing her best in her craft and on the world stage. She is passionate about impacting others and has seen what people are capable of. There is now more science and language around the processes that allow people to really get after it in life and pursue their potential. So we've learned to play it safe and to worry about whether other people think of us because of the messaging that we get when we're kids, you know, versus like, okay, let's figure out how to go for this in a way. And like, I'll be there if you, if, if it doesn't work out, you know, but like, let's, let's see what happens right now. So I I think that's part of it. The messaging that we get as we're growing up is to play it safe. So in terms of like self-compassion and self-empathy, it's like, Can I hold space for myself in the same way that I would for my best friend in a time of need? And then can I meet them, meet myself with the level of understanding um, that I would with my best friend in a time of need? Um, Because I think we're often trying to externalize those needs, you know, Um, holding space and, and understanding, and it gets in the way of acceptance. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with Nicole Davis. Hi, Nicole. What's up, guys? Thanks for joining us. Captain. Fired up to be here. Yeah. Power outage. We power through. We're adjusting. We're high performing our batteries. Yes, we are. Mm. Got backups. Got a few backups. Backup slash wait. Yep. So you have a TED Talk. Oh, Pretty yeah. awesome. Thanks. You, you forget about it? it? Feels like a lifetime ago, yeah. just like my career. And, and you talk about <laughs> um, your excellence starting with finding yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do that? How do people find themselves? I think it's less of a question of like finding yourself. It's not like a rock that you go unturn, yeah. but it's paying attention to how you've been living your life and what what principles have driven your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Because at the, at the essence of authentic, authenticity is alignment of those three things, your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And so if you pay attention or even if you take the time and create space for yourself to, to anchor some, some of those principles to paper, you might just be able to distill down who you are as a human being and what drives you. And so is it kind of like that Bruce Lee, the medicine that I needed was in me the whole time? I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, that, like I, like sure I, that, everything I needed was here. I just needed to listen to it kind of thing. That's right. I think, I think generally when we look at you know, performance psychology, uh, that to be able to anchor to that idea is critical, that everything I need is already within me. And often we're searching for more, um, especially externally, um, as we're trying to show up and be our best, whether that's being an authentic um, person in our role at the workplace or just showing up and being our most authentic self in something that we're performing in terms of sports or um, as a parent. Uh, so I think when we're looking for outside or external validation, then it's really easy to get lost in the moment or get pushed around by the environment or people around us or 
social constructs. And that's when we lose who we are and how we want to show up and be in a way that's a best representation of ourselves. Hmm. Do you have ways for people, leading question, to really tap in to marrying those three things together, like observationally? How does someone go about building, as you say, the reps to, to really find that Repetitions, place? bro. To, to find oneself and then yeah. show up and be that yeah. more often. Yeah. Uh, one would be to, to create space for yourself to actually do the work and anchor it to paper. What does uh, that mean? Um, what does do the work mean specifically? Most of us don't sit in self-reflection anymore. So to sit and whether that's in a mindfulness meditation practice and do some, some contemplative mindfulness and ask uh, yourself the difficult questions like who am I, what are my strengths, how am I going to bring those into the world today, or just to sit and think about the people that we admire most and why, um, words and phrases that have helped shape our lives, words that we tend to use a lot because language is an extension of our thoughts, and so that gives us great insight into our inner workings. Um, to go back and reflect on pivotal moments in your life and what was driving decisions in, in those moments. Um, but to sit in reflection in some sort of way to decode or distill down kind of everything that we value to our core principles so that it's really concise, so that you have a reference point when you get tested to be able to come back to. If you don't do the work to anchor it, then it's we, we don't have a reference point or a compass, and we, we tend to get lost in, in that space if we haven't done the work. So one would be to sit in self-reflection. The second is to memorize it and then actually share it with people. You know, like this is what I'm all about as a human being. And then maybe even you're open to being held accountable to it. You know, so like, hey, I'm going to screw this up sometimes. And I, I need you to, to lock arms with me and be able to like say, hey, this is, this is what I know you're all about right now. How can I help you be that more right now? And then the second is like actually seek to get it tested. Like if if you're all about risk, right, if that's what you stand for as a human being, like are you purposefully and intentionally stepping outside of your comfort zone every single day or do you play it safe, you know, and then you have this idea that you're about risk but you don't really live into it. So that would be my recommendation for how to, to get repetitions at being your most authentic self. That thing on um, being willing to be called out on it, invoking our good friend Dolly, she uh -huh. has this concept of being a good-ish person. Good -ish, I love it. It's so good. Like, I'm not finished. Yeah. It's okay to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. What do I learn from it? Um, I had another, I had a question, and then I lost it. Yeah, I th what I love about that, though, is that um, what I, th I think her point is that shame is what gets in the way of us. Um, it, in particular, she speaks to bias, obviously, but shame is what gets in the way of us confronting bias and then doing different because for various reasons. One of it is just a, a need to be morally good as human beings. Um, but I, I think in terms... Shame being the thought that I am bad. Right, exactly. Like, oh, wait, I have a bias, but I'm a good person, right? Exactly. And and all of us have biases. They're built into the way nope, the brain is any. designed. <laughs> um, but the same thing, like, we, we want to think of ourselves as good good human beings, great people, and so then that gets in the way the shame, embarrassment... Self-critique, I think, is one of the biggest things that gets in the way of us saying, like leading with, I'm, I'm not going to get this right all the time, but I, I want to get it right. And, uh, and so being held accountable uh, on the flip side of that is maybe just even 
asking for help. I, for some reason, for human beings, it seems like a really difficult thing to do. But it's interesting for me, coming from a, an athletic background, is that the feedback loop in sports, especially at an elite level, is very, very quick. Because like when you mess up, you hear about it right away. Right. And, or you, and, it, or you and it's know not, about it and, and you hear about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just the top-down yeah. process, right? Because yeah. often, like, in the environments that I work in with corporate clientele, it's a top-down process, feedback is. Right. Oh, and it happens, cool. like, quarterly, right? But, like, in, in the world of sport at an elite level, feedback, there's an internal mechanism for feedback because there's such great kinesthetic awareness for most elite performers. But then your, your teammates, your teammates are also there giving yeah. you some sort of feedback, whether it's nonverbal or verbal. And then there's a video camera watching everything you do. There's statistics being tell, uh, being taken for everything you do. And then there's a coach, also the top-down process that takes place. And, and every rep that you take get, gets you feedback. And so the accountability is built in mechanism for sport. But it, out, outside of that, it, it's not the same. The feedback isn't as quick. The cost is that we're not learning at, at the same pace. Mm. And so um, quick, real accountability. Quick, random question. Yeah. Do you ever have a moment where you mess something up and you're like, shit, that's on tape. I'm going to have to see that later. Do you ever <laughs> have that? Of course. <laughs> in the USA Volleyball Gym, it's like Big Brother. Like, not only do we have, like, cameras next to the stat people, but then in the gym there are cameras. And so you can actually log into something and, like, go back and watch your own practice. But you also, like, know that once a week you're meeting with your positional coach and they're going to play. They're going to play that like, bag, that bonehead mistake. Too, you're yeah. going to see it. Yeah. How do you um, suggest, because that – regular accountability mm. being built into the process mm. in regular everyday life, mm. like you said, requires you to make that effort. Mm. How do you make it regular without putting too much burden you mean for on like non athletes? Else? Yeah, for oh, like yeah. Mm. you know, if you're trying to find it and live your best life, mm -hmm. like do you do you have suggestions for making that regular? Yeah. First of all, Instagram. We, we, like we yeah, life, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> first of all, we are our greatest feedback mechanism. I don't think we tap into it enough. So we have the potential to be our greatest possible coach, but also the worst possible coach. So understanding what your self talk is like, and whether that's building you up or breaking you down, I think is critical to, to accountability. Because if your self talk just constantly breaks you down. Uh, it doesn't matter what someone else is going to say. The way you attribute what they're saying um, is going to impact your ability to be held accountable or receive feedback in the future. So I think it's difficult to receive feedback if you can't get yourself right. Um, so I would say start with yourself and understand what your inner workings are like. And um, really, like, are you fundamentally designing your life around growth, um, which is what elite Wait, performers sorry, do? Sorry, before growth. Yes. On the mindset piece. <laughs> Like specifically the self talk. Mm -hmm. You're super. You are a super high performing athlete. Mm -hmm. Did you always feel that way about self talk? Like, how did you feel about it as you were coming up, playing or moving about the world? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know that you could formally train your mind until after I was a two time Olympian and maybe the best player in the world in my position. And so, I, my self talk was very self critical. Uh, I would beat myself up up a lot so this is what's hard about self-critique is that for most people to get you good you know like the thought like i'm not good enough yet and so i'm gonna work harder mm -hmm. you know um like that voice is helping you yeah right um but it's also like a, a quick, the shit out it's of like a little quick jab to the face as well you know and if you jab yourself in the face enough at some point you're gonna you, yeah you, yeah you might need to sit take, 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 take 10 right? and what like, that yeah. What that looks like in terms of performance is that you're, you're not going to squeeze out that last 10%, whatever. I'm making yeah. up a number, you know. Um, but it's a cost to 
like pushing the ceiling of your potential, it's also a cost to the way you experience your pursuits. So I think often... Well, how do you rationalize that? Because like, if you were the best position, potentially the best, best mm-hmm. in your position mm-hmm. in the world, yet you didn't even realize that you could tap into that mm-hmm. l- last whatever percent. I would say I, I, did, I knew there was more in me. Mm. I just didn't have... I didn't you know ha- how to get there. I didn't know how to get there until we started working with the with Dr. Mike Gervais. Uh, our team did the last three years of my how career. How did you know there was more? It's just an internal. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, because there were there were moments, for example, where I would show up and it would everything felt aligned for me. Who I was, like flowish how, or yeah, flow state, but n- not just like peak peak performance, but also like a sense that I was expressing myself in an authentic way so while like performing. Yes, yeah, so I felt like me, but then also I was executing the best that I I could at that time. Yeah. And so like there's an when when things are off, we feel it if you pay attention. There's tension inside of our body somewhere, mm-hmm. and um. So for me, like, that was the compass. I would leave certain matches, even though the numbers were where they needed to be. Like, I could feel that I left something out. You weren't out. fully yeah. aligned. But I didn't, I didn't always know how, how to move the needle towards m- more alignment, for example, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was an internal feeling that I, I felt. But to get, to, like, where did that come from for you? Like, is that something that you just felt as innate in you? every day like that's something i i find fascinating about athletes at at your level Mm -hmm. like it starts somewhere Mm -hmm. and it seems innate natural is it something your parents helped you with like where did that come from i can't speak to whether it's innate and natural you know like i haven't read any research uh in terms of I mean, conscientiousness would fall into, Nature like, as a, as, a, as, as a personality yeah, trait, would yeah. fall into self-awareness, you know. But I think because of the environment, the, the inherent ecosystem of sport is that you're required to get uncomfortable every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's in that space that we learn the most about ourselves, and it's where we grow. And so you're... Or not. Or, some or people, not, like, right? Because, people or out, too, right? Right, exactly. And so... Um, and you kept going. Like. I, yes, I kept going. But I, I think the self-awareness is built in the space of being uncomfortable. And then when you reach moments of peak performance, it's like, oh, that's what's possible. And then when you get uncomfortable, get uncomfortable, you, you increase or enhance your ability, your skill, and your craft. And then you reach a higher level of peak performance. Like the, there continues to be that calibration of what's possible versus like what, what is right now. And so I, I think for me, just the the design of elite sport around growth and getting uncomfortable. Like we look to invite stress into our ecosystem every day. Mm-hmm. Whereas in most other environments, people are trying to avoid stress. Kind of, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It hurts. So I think it's, I think it's, you, I think it's a good teacher. How did you find volleyball? <laughs> um, <laughs> it was kind of silly, actually. Uh, I was in eighth grade and I had the choice to go to the public school or the private school. I chose the public school and I had never played volleyball uh, before, maybe like once or twice family reunion or something but never organized volleyball and someone from the public school came to my eighth grade class and put pieces of paper up on the whiteboard and said if you wanted to try out for a sport put your name up and at the time i was doing martial arts you're like a black belt right yeah at the time i was doing martial arts and i wanted to get back into team sports again 
uh, I don't. In retrospect, I don't know why because I was a terrible teammate at the time because I like com- I competed. I competed so hard; I was at the cost of everyone else, you know. And like Imagine I didn't. That. And I'm like, yeah, I competed <laughs> yeah. so hard; everybody else felt alien. <laughs> no, no one else felt. Um, this isn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know why it's I, not I, fun? Because you <laughs> suck, and we're not winning. That's why this isn't grade fun. Yeah. Like eighth grade volleyball, Nicole. <laughs> so I, yeah, I literally just wanted to play team sport again. I thought volleyball looked like fun, and, and it ended up being it. fun for you. Yeah, um, I, I, to be honest, like I did, I I showed up in like jean shorts the day before. I was like, "Hey, mom, I think I should buy some knee pads." Like I had no idea what volleyball was about, uh, really, or the culture of volleyball. But yeah, I, I had a blast. What um, is the culture of volleyball? Uh, or what did you mean by that? I think when we look at team sports, volleyball is one of the one of the team sports where like there there's such a reliance on everyone executing their job well. Like in basketball, you can have a Kobe Bryant that scores 100 points. And in volleyball, you can have an athlete score 44 points or something like that. But she can't score those 44 points if someone's not passing the ball well and a setter's not hooking her up, you know. And if even that, it's like there's it's more complex than that. I don't want to get into volleyball jargon, but like a hit, an outside hitter, for example, that's hitting on the left side of the court. Um, her his or her job is a lot easier if the setter is great at running and balanced offense because then they don't always have two blockers in front of them. And on the world stage, when you have two blockers in front of you, it's really hard to hit at a high efficiency. So th- there's so many that like aspects, sense. you know, of the game that like no one can do it alone. And I, I think for me that that's one of the things that like I recognize early, even though I couldn't articulate what that was, mm-hmm. is that like we we all had to be in it together. Uh, I think I was also really fortunate that. M- my coach when I was in high school and for the last part of my club um, club volleyball career uh, spent a lot of time developing us as people. So one of the things that we did was we read John Wooden's Pyramid of Success. Oh, yeah. Every single week we read a different building block of wow. the pyramid and did activities around that. So we essentially were doing character development and tying that back into why that matters for us as individuals and why that matters for the culture of the team. And so, you know, we, I was an outside hitter. I'm five foot four. That's like stupid nowadays. Like there are 13 year olds that are five foot four. Um, <laughs> you know, so like uh, my. But it didn't matter. Yeah, my junior and so our tallest player was five foot eleven, and my junior and senior year we played in the state finals against April Ross's team. Most people, if they know anything about volleyball, would recognize recognize April Ross. Um, and we lost in both matches because their X's were a lot bigger than our O's. You know, but mm. um, but we is had, that really what it broke down to? Yeah, they had four girls that were six foot or taller and all four of them signed to division one schools, you know? So, um, they were just like they more were okay. physical, but we, we were a great team. Um, but yeah, anyways, I, we, we were far more successful than we, than we should have been or just like looking at us, you know? Uh, and so I think those were good lessons for me in terms of like what it's like. I, I was also, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going backwards a little bit, but in Fun. the car the other day, I was thinking about like how special it is when we achieve something with a group of people like there's there i think there are a few things that feel that good you know than when you're you're in it with a group of people whether it's one other person or many other people and i don't i don't know if i want to call it like group flow but like you just you put in the work and then whether the outcomes are what you need them to be or not you know like that feeling of peak performance with other people i think that's really special i mean we're we're animals, and we social creatures. We are yeah. very social, yeah. and yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, if you, if your coach was like a lot of high school coaches, 
like the ones I experienced. Yeah. Yelled at you all the time and made mm-hmm. you feel like whatever you're doing mm-hmm. wasn't the way he was. Do you? Probably not. Yeah, I I'm I was a great little athlete, and so there were lots of sports that I could have played. You know, um, so I I've yeah I've on several occasions given credit to my coach and his wife. His wife was actually like really important in guiding me as a young, very reactive kind of hot-headed competitive athlete so i'm i feel very fortunate for both of them you seem so calm <laughs> hot-headed what did... years later <laughs> lots of Growth. mindfulness of of <laughs> i'm breathing <laughs> deeply right now <laughs> Do, volleyball seems to have like um I'm, i've learned a little bit more about it especially since moving out here but it seems to have like a almost like a chessish like there's a lot of strategy mm. that you wouldn't know if you didn't pay attention. I mean, there's plays being called. There's, mm-hmm. You're just talking about outside hitters and blockers. Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to move people to where you want them That's so right. that you can get a shot that you want, almost like tennis. But mm-hmm. um, So there's a big mental aspect. to it. So like mm-hmm. the culture is everybody's got to be on their game, mm-hmm. not just physically, but mentally mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, we, we value learning. Uh, on the world stage, we think that learning is, is – um, a premium over talent and so we consider ourselves students of the game we spend a lot of time as i mentioned studying ourselves in practice um, but also studying our opponents and there's statistics to just about everything you can imagine um sure. so we pay a lot of attention like rotation by rotation athlete by athlete like what tendencies are and mm-hmm. we, we'll play to tendencies and then design our offense and defensive systems um, around our strengths relative to another team or individual's tendencies. How do you so, – so if you're doing that for another team, mm-hmm. do you try and break down your tendencies to figure out which ones they might be attacking? Yeah, definitely. You, ha- you have to know strengths and weaknesses on both sides. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, kind of kind of like just as an individual when you show up, like you want to play to your strengths, right? Um, sure. So – when the focus becomes you cover up your weaknesses as much too, as too much on what another team is doing, then you you're out of your game. You tend to get pushed around by them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we like to get into some things. You were a pretty competitive kid, to say the least. Mm-hmm. You kicked other kids for a while. Um, and you yelled at them, screamed at them, like legally them they kicked were them. Worthless. I, yeah, like, I did legally. What was um, what what? How did your parents enable that with you? Like, how did they allow you to grow without mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. shame or worthlessness mm-hmm. fire that mm-hmm. probably was judged? Or did you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, there were a couple aspects to it. My, my dad modeled risk for me, risk-taking, and so it was kind of like when I was young, if he jumped off of a 20-foot cliff when we were skiing, I jumped off in, in suit. Uh, and there was never kind of like a... From just hit- like a random, is that just like a wild that, what if, or did that happen? No, that's real. Okay. Um, my dad was kind of like a, a bad boy, charismatic, but also an a-hole. So, um, hmm. but he, he, I, I never had a sense of like a limiting belief mm-hmm. from him that because I was a little girl, I couldn't do what he was doing mm-hmm. as a grown man, you know? Uh, so I, I think I learned the art of risk from him. And then my parents got divorced when I was 14. And, and I think, um, this plays into it, but like my mom never kept me on a short leash. She always allowed me space to to roam and run. And he taught you, he taught you risk, and she let you play with it. Yeah, like she gave you the space, and he taught you what to do with it. Right, but well, then she she showed up and was 
was there for my mom owned her own business, worked twelve hour days, seven days a week, she a and she ass. she never missed a thing I ever participated in. Really, and, and so with doing all that, yeah, and so like the support aspect was there, especially from her end, but then also like the the challenge aspect of like, you know, hey hey, you can do this, like so, I'm, I'm so going to do it, so you can do it. Physically and mentally, yeah, she was there. yeah, like, there was a safety, yeah. Um, Art of Risk, Kate Sukel, good book, you should read it. <laughs> adding to my reading list today um art of war <laughs> Sun Tzu. Uh, there's a really good graphic novel for that that's updated for the future but mm-hmm. um art of risk like there's such thing as bad risk mm-hmm. but like what does art of risk mean when you say that yeah I, I think it's like building capacity one it's like having space to go for it but then two um especially if it doesn't work work out having some support and calibration um, so that you feel safe psychologically to go for it again. So when you say go for it, like what, defining risk, like what, what would it's, you define risk as? I think it's different for everyone and we mm. all have a different um, ca- capacity for it, whether it's intellectual, emotional, physical. Um, we all have a, a different kind of capacity for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it. My risk is relative to me, relative to you. It's different. So I think it's finding whatever the edge of that is for you. Mm-hmm. Like for some people, saying "I love you" first. Um, for other people, it's like jumping off of a cliff, you know. And mm-hmm. their heart rate might get up differently, or the same for those two things. And sure. so, if we never get to that space, though, then we we don't have the chance to like understand where our capacity is at. And then once you're in it, what what do you do with it? So part of it, like as a kid, when we're looking at risk, it's like, do you have a support system, especially if it doesn't go well? As an adult, it's what are you attributing your successes and failures to when you're when you're in the space of risk? Because if you attribute it externally, then you're less likely to go for it again, for example. But if it's like, no, 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 I like I did this well, but like I could probably do this a- different again mm-hmm. if I had the chance. And like I-, I feel like I can, I can, I got this, you know. Then it's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna be able to go for it mm-hmm. again and risk again. And if it doesn't work out, then I, I'm still in the space of like we could say a growth mindset, but like an openness to learning, even though the outcomes aren't what we desire. And even what you said earlier, like reflecting on mm-hmm. the why you even took the risk and right. what's what what propelled you to to be there in the first place. Right. So what I was gonna say earlier is like elite performers fundamentally design their lives around growth. And what that means is that there's going to be what's likely to happen is that feedback is going to be difficult and it's not always going to be good or reinforcing. So if we fall back to like um, self-efficacy theory, learning theory, social cognitive theory, like behaviorism, as human beings, we're more likely to repeat a behavior, which is the very essence of learning if there's some sort of positive reinforcement and if we feel like we can positively affect outcomes in the future by our um, effort, I think elite performers, because they're so committed to growth and learning that even in the absence of positive reinforcement or even in the presence of difficult feedback, they'll keep going. Is that part of the art of risk? So so what I was going to say is like, there's no point in taking risk if you're not fundamentally like committed to growth. Because that'll because that'll point your because then your risk will be just aimless. Self talk will go in the opposite right. direction. Right, exactly. Just all yeah. over the place. Yeah, and and there's no judgment in that. Like I, you know, like I I think it's the human condition to fall back to what's comfortable in some sort of way. It's also helped keep us safe and survive. Alive. You know, 
And so it, it's much easier to, like, work hard, work a nine-to-five, five days a week, and come home and, like, put a hoodie on and, like, watch television over the weekend rather than, like, continue to find ways to grow in your spare time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I get that. Like, the pace and speed and the demands that we all have are insane. Uh, but I, I do think that, like, fundamentally, like, that is one of the differences because I, I've – I've played some of the best athletes I've played against could not hack it on the national team for two weeks because they couldn't get into that mindset of growth. They're so used to being the greatest athlete on their team that they were yeah. never forced to get uncomfortable. Talk about that more, but like for real, like I've, uh, Chris I th- Paul. Like, I think that's the trap in success. Is like I've I've done this a certain way. Yeah. And it, I've reached a certain level of success, maybe even one of the best on my team, one yeah. of the best in the country, one of the best in the world. And it's much harder to get uncomfortable knowing that you're likely maybe to get a little bit worse before you get better because the, of the attachment to success. So I think how we define success fundamentally also is oh, an issue here. I think how do you that, define success or do you define or do you just define it for you? And, and, yeah. and then how do you define it? Uh, d- process is becoming my best. The process. Yeah, so, you, so it's about process, not outcomes. It's about my best versus someone else determining what that is. How do you is. balance that with, say, being on a team mm-hmm. where there's out, the goal is to win right. and you've got stats for your position mm-hmm. or whatever, and maybe you're not hitting those. So mm-hmm. there's the external saying, hey, yep. you're not hitting this. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can't do this anymore. Like, right. How do you balance that from a like personal happiness? Standpoint? Like, Say you're not hitting the goals yeah, yeah. and you're still doing what you feel you can do. Mm-hmm. Or trying anyway. Like I'm not saying outcomes don't matter, and I'm not saying that I don't care about outcomes. What I'm saying is that I have a, a really clear understanding that they're just a distraction and that mm. they're not in my control. Is it like a priority thing, like yeah. or a hierarchy, like like the process think, over the results? You could think of that, or it's just command of mind, like tra- training your mind so that when you're distracted, whether it's by an outcome or a squirrel. Uh, that 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 you can come back to now and to what you need to focus on in the present moment to be your best. So outcomes matter. Like we all have an invisible handshake in the roles that we play. It's like we love you. Like here's your salary. Like we'll coach you up or we'll be there with you. But if until you don't, into <laughs> until you don't perform, and then like sorry, you got to go somewhere else. And mm. and that that process is a lot quicker on the world stage than it is in most other environments. You know, you have two weeks to stat out. At how a, many people are trying to get your a, position? Um, my position, four or five people, um, but one gets like to go. Like that are actively on the team? One gets to go. One, okay. One gets to go. So unlike... But then in the rest of the world, there's still more trying to get into those four or five spots. Yeah. 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 Uh, about 85% of people that train with us don't make the team. They're probably not and it's a three and a half year tryout. <laughs> how do you, how do you help how did people? How do you do a three and a half year tryout? I have no, I, I, I have no idea. I did ten <laughs> interviews and was like, I am I'm done, done with this. Like, I am so good on yeah. being a value. And 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 that was like, and that ten interview process is not good enough to get to know somebody. Yeah, like to really know if they fit or if you fit with them mm-hmm. or if you even want to be there. Mm-hmm. Three and a half years is probably mm-hmm. better for yeah. that, but. Good God, that's probably mentally exhausting. Yeah. I mean, we could tie that back to just, like, resilience, the ability to bounce back from from adversity, you know, because that's essentially what it is, is, like, adverse experience after adverse experience. You hear no a lot. Um, you don't stat out. You don't get the outcomes you always want. Um, even if you make rosters, you're not always the starting player. There's a lot of questions. You could be the best in the world, too, and ha- get injured, you know, a week before the Olympics, and there you go. So 
You know, like, do you have a clear sense of what's in your control and the, the ability to let go of what's not through the process? Do you have the mindset that things are challenges versus threats? <laughs> um, and then do you have a deep commitment to what you're doing? And when those three components are present, then you're more likely to be able to move through challenging situations and, and bounce back when things don't go your, as planned. Challenge versus threats. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? So when we, um, another way to think of it is like avoidance of failure or fear, fear-based kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so can you change the, w- which, yes, w- <laughs> yes, you can change your perception <laughs> yeah. of how you view the world. And there are lots of ways to do that. You could train optimism, for example, you could train mindfulness, train for example, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. Train naivete. Uh, no. Um, so there, there are ways to train it. Um, one is to understand your relationship with challenge. You know, like most of us like to think that we love challenge, but like when someone says, uh, okay, who, who wants to go first? Like, do you raise your hand with excitement? Like, that's a very simple way of thinking about it. Or if you've ever been in a meeting and you had a great idea to share, but you didn't raise your hand because you were afraid of what someone else would think of you or you weren't sure it was a safe place, like then like, yeah, right. Uh, then, then fundamentally you don't love challenge, you know? And so I think it, it, we live in a Which world, is okay, but we like, we just never evaluate it. Right, right. Right. We live in a world where like safety is, is prime, you know, and, and we learn to play because it. Because of our brains? Uh, I th- Maybe a little bit, and I, I think also um, from a social cultural standpoint, like we learn to play it safe from a very young age. You know, like as kids, mm. when you're excited to go out and play, and like your hair's a freaking mess, and your t-shirt's on backwards, like your mom's probably yelling at you, like, "Hey, John, hey, hey, Johnny, get out of the dirt!" Or like, "Don't run across the street so fast, you're gonna get hit with the car." Great, yes, we need to learn safety, but like it's constantly like priming our mind for anxiety like something could go wrong in the future if i go for it right now and so we learn to play it safe and to worry about whether other people think of us because of the messaging that we get when we're kids you know versus like okay let's figure out how to go for this in a way and like i'll be there if you if if it doesn't work out you know Mm -hmm. but like let's let's see what happens right now so I, i think that's part of it the messaging that we get as we're growing up is to play it safe and then what, what happens is when we have these models of people who aren't playing it safe, we tend to label them as extreme, like extreme athletes, right, versus adventure athletes. Like that, that nuance in language, we, we do that with ourselves, you know. So like when the thought comes up when we want to share an idea and we're worried about what someone could think of us, do we think, oh, crap, this could be bad? Or is it like, well, screw it. If they don't like what I have to say, like, I think this is going to add value to everybody else. I'm going to go for it right now. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll figure out how to adjust, you know? Like, so, like starting a podcast. Yeah. So, so just, like, the nuance in how we think of that, you know? Is it a threat? Is it stress? Is it distress? Um, is there a, a fear that we're trying to avoid? Or, like, can, can we just show up and embrace whatever comes? Mm. So that's what I mean by challenge. Thanks. How do you help people accept their best self when we have a natural inclination to inclination to compare right like you're the best in the world at what you do and an olympic athlete mm-hmm. and you've strived very purposefully to get there mm-hmm. but you know and we talk about like some people's best self is that nine to five mm-hmm. and you know i used to think i wanted to be a ceo until i realized what a ceo actually what it took to get there mm-hmm. and what 
actually meant to be there. It's like I have no interest in being there. It took me a long time to accept that mm -hmm. as an okay outcome, mm -hmm. depending on you know what my best self actually is. Like how that's like a piece of this discovery of who you are mm -hmm. and finding a way not to say, okay, your best self, awesome. Mm -hmm. Mine, not that, mm -hmm. but I love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you get that? How that, do you help people get that? That's tough. Uh, I will say I, I want to like put a pin in that comparison is not always bad. It is part of learning theory. You know, the idea that like what you're doing is a little bit better than me. And I, I think I can do that too. You know, like we need others to explore potential there would be a trap to like living with blinders on in a bubble and not ever like peering right? out to what's yeah. possible, right? So the, what takes place though is many of us will peer too far out <laughs> without like, you know, um, taking the steps or having sort of a realistic idea of, of how to get there, you like know? The war like what it, what it takes. Yeah, to yeah. It. yeah. Uh, so going back to acceptance, I think it's really challenging. It's a, it's a journey that I'm still on. When I teach things like confidence, um, coming from self-talk, right, and the mechanics of how to get that right, at underneath it all is self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-empathy. And I think it's really difficult, especially for people who are getting after it in some sort of way because of the self-critique, you know, because it, it, it has gotten most people um, where they are. Where they are. Or at least uh, they yeah well i guess it has to, to a degree to a degree like we talked about earlier right it's like having a chip on your yeah. shoulder yeah has to get you yeah right so then the question is like is this working for me anymore <laughs> i think we all reach a point where it's like there's a moment of awareness you know and i can't give that to my clients <laughs> you know like you were saying like i wanted this for so High long and then i was like and wait a second <laughs> you know because you had a moment of awareness to be dichotomous and so i think awareness is really key like is this working for me and is the reason why I'm driving towards this because I'm like there's a fire in my belly for it or because this is an idea that I've had or maybe a seed that was planted that's not really mine. It's not really what I'm passionate about or driven and nobody towards. Nobody give you that. You right. just got to yeah. sit with it you and figure sit with it out. It. Yeah. Which and we're taught not to do. Right. We're taught to, yeah. we're taught to follow the, the formula. Right. right? Like, yeah, exactly. Whoever, whoever designed that formula mm -hmm. wrote that formula. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's there. It came on. Yeah. yeah. So. So in terms of like self-compassion and self-empathy, it's, it's like, can I hold space for myself in the same way that I would for my best friend in a time of need? And then can I meet them, meet myself with a level of understanding um, that I would with my best friend in a time of need? Um, because I think we're often trying to externalize those needs, you know, um, well, holding space and, and understanding. And it gets in the way of acceptance. Where are you at with that? Uh, I, think, I think I've come a long way, especially in the last year. Um, I've definitely, what that, that journey, like what, what does that look like for you? For me, it's a, a lot of mindfulness around compassion, loving kindness, self-empathy. Um, also, a, sorry, a, also a great you know? book is radical acceptance by Tara Brock. Um, uh, so thanks for the books. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I missed your question. Right, what was, what's the negative side of that? What, how has that looked for you during this? Uh, I think some people think that like acceptance is the same as complacency and that like I think for a long time I was reticent to, to go down that route because it's like I might lose my edge and, and they're not the same. They're not the same. Acceptance so you're is kind of act actively fighting. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, huh. acceptance is not complacency. Acceptance is like a willingness to 
to just like I love you, but you suck. <laughs> no, a, a willingness <laughs> to experience difficult things, you know, and have a sense of balanced neutrality or balanced perspective around it. I think uh, another thing that gets in the way of acceptance is like just attachment, you know, attachment to experience and to outcomes. You That's know? what Yoda says. Um, there you go, and, and he's the master, and so. he's the master. So and he speaks funny. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> your life is yours. It is. <laughs> That was a really bad quote. I, I made it up. <laughs> My mind doesn't think like Yoda. I have to ask a question, kind of going back, because you slid this in there, and I don't want it to. Parents got divorced at 14. Oh, I'm yeah. sure that played yeah, a part. Good job. What, you, that down. What, what did you mean by that? Uh, I, th- I think in retrospect, sport was an outlet for me. It was a coping mechanism for, for what I was experiencing at home, which is one of the reasons why I was so competitive. Were you aware of it or did, was it just that? No, I yeah. wasn't aware of it. And, uh, was it a hard divorce on you then? I actually wanted my parents to get divorced. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. My dad was, phys- you were acutely aware of it. My dad was physically abusive to my mom. Oh, so you were um, acutely aware of it. Yeah. Not, not, in, not up until the point of their divorce, but, um, early on in life until probably I was, I don't know, eight, nine or 10. I don't remember. Um, but you know, my mom had black eye, broken nose. There were police at our house on several occasions. Um, the last time I saw my parents together, I physically had to separate them. Um, so like last time, like recently, no, no, no. Sorry. When I was 14. Oh, like, 14. Um, oh, yeah. so, so I got, you know, that like my parents shouldn't be together. It was hard for me because when I was a little kid, um, even though my dad was physically abusive to my mom, he was like the apple of my eye and we did everything together, you know, and he was never physically abusive to me. Um, as I got older and started to have my own voice and speak out about what I was seeing and hearing, then he started to become, I would say like more ver- verbally abusive or neglectful. Um, so I think I was, I think I was always searching for, for just stuff outside of that, you know, and so sport was great for me in that, I found a support system outside of home, and then I was able to work out some 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 aggression, <laughs> a little bit you know, physically. yeah, physically, in a real yeah, way, in yeah. a real way, you know. Yeah. And so, but now it makes sense to me, you know, like, um, like I was I was sharing last night that, like, I was reactive and like super competitive. I would get annoyed with my teammates if they didn't work hard, and so you know, people would call me a bitch sometimes. And I was saying how grateful I was to my coach's wife because she she kind of guided me like you know like you're competing hard but there's another way to do this but when we look at like there's so much research now around early childhood trauma and exposure to violence and and um experiencing violence yeah and what we know now is like the question is not what what's wrong with you it's what what has happened to you and no one asked me that question ever because i'm white and i come from a middle class family and you're good right right i'm good right you're privileged yeah exactly right not to feel any yeah yeah so I think I, I just continued to, like, really push the edge in terms of sport because it was a little Petri dish for me to explore um, myself. I just saw a thing uh, the other day. I think it was on Instagram. It was like, it, the, it, it's not I am depressed. It's I have depression. I have depression. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's. Is that, like, is that why you do what you do like, does that play a role in it? For sure, yeah. Yeah, I think once I got some space after retirement from my career and I started to understand my psychological framework and kind of what was driving me for so many years to be good, um, that I realized that, and going back to something we talked about earlier, is that, like, 
high performance and joy in the pursuit of being your best do not have to be dichotomous, but that's often the model that we see. Yeah. And no so uh, one of the things that fires me up most is that like one, I, th- I think a common characteristic of, of really high performers, elite high performers that, that is that they've had some sort of pain early in life that has driven them. Uh, which means that there are, there are things that need to be addressed. You know, um, a lot of high performers struggle with depression, anxiety, substance abuse. Um, and so, which I, I don't want to say I like suffered from, but I dipped into at, at times in my career, you know? Um, but also like there, because of my inability to filter through, you know, like the one bonehead mistake on yeah, certain yeah, days, yeah. like I didn't have a ton of joy in my experience of being on the world stage. And so, yes, knowing what I know now, like I want to be able to help people and create space for people to pursue their best, but also understand the mechanisms for thriving and flourishing and joy in the, in the process of doing so. How have mm-hmm. you, I don't know what the end result is for you, but processed. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think especially in the last year, I've been doing more of it. Uh, I have a therapist. She's great. Um, we dive less into like the traumatic experience, but how it's shaping how I'm showing up in my relationships. Um, I've spent more time just actually like, let me rewind. Um, as part of my coping with all of it was to compartmentalize things. Uh, I think most, a, a lot I'm of like elite performers really in well. some, some way, you know, like they're, I'm an they're, expert yeah, 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 like it's a great, hire me it's, at the docks. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great coping mechanism. Uh-huh, it really totally. is like yeah. package things up neatly, like find a way to understand it and put it to the side. And so like my dad, for example, I haven't talked to him in 20 years. My dad is a good example of that. It's like, he's something that like, once I walked away from that, I compartmentalized it, you know, and it was an issue I once had, but he's still my father. I still have his DNA, you know? And so like one of the things that like has helped me th- through that as my therapist like just saying that out loud is like you are not your father but you are your father's daughter you know and so but what that means is like you can learn how to deal with it when it comes up because it's always going to come up because he is a part of who you are right literally right whereas I was like no 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 like (laughs) you know like um, that's a thing in the past and so just understanding now more through doing work with my therapist and then sitting with it in mindfulness meditation when things are coming up and why they're coming up for me because of my past and because of the trauma and then having um, more skill really around uh, confronting it, sitting with it, like actually like feeling the emotion um, and then creating space between what maybe used to be a reaction and now is a response. Those two things. So compartmentalizing, feeling the feeling Mm -hmm. like what are the actual things you do i mean probably some of them you said meditation and stuff like that but like yeah Uh, i I think in the beginning it was really hard for me because i was used to compartmentalizing especially my emotions that i would intellectualize something and then and so i i actually didn't ever learn the skill of holding space for myself (laughs) it was a good (laughs) whistle whistle. but i was thinking the intellectualizing i'm like oh i've never done that oh wait all the time I never like learned how to hold space for myself. You know, like when, when you're a kid and like something, something is wrong, like mom holds us. Right. And I never learned how to do that for myself. And so if Have I would, you learned to now, I'm learning. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Call me when you get it. Yeah. Or so, like when you find something so, that helps. <laughs> so my experience when I made the commitment to myself to stop compartmentalizing was that I would go into an abyss of the emotion. I wasn't able to and just I'd like, be in it. yeah, and be in it. I wasn't able to just like dip into it. Um, I think the word that I'm looking for is uh, tetrate, titrate, 
Um, oh, yeah. Um, no scientific on us. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I wasn't able to just like dip into it and feel it a little bit and then come out of it. So I'd go into like this. Or just ab- completely neglect it. Right, right, right. Or completely neglect it. I mean, that's it. the way I roll. Yeah. And so I would go into like this abyss when I would allow myself to feel. And, and it, it hurt. sucked. It like hurt. I literally said to a friend, like, how do you do this every day? <laughs> like it's, it's so painful. It's draining. Yeah. And it's really yeah. draining, you know? Yeah. And uh, I don't just through the process of like sitting with it and continue to do the repetitions like any other skill. Like any other. Any other skill yeah. we have, right? Um, and. This goes back to acceptance, allowing myself to be in it, you know? Do you think the skill set that you learned as an athlete allowed you to persevere through that pain? Because I think that's a lot of what people... Yeah, yeah. That it sucks Yeah. when you feel that way about yourself for the first time mm-hmm. after however many years. Mm-hmm. And it's like, nah, I don't want to do this. Yeah. There's that- also some, like, value assigned to that feeling. Like, mm-hmm. I shouldn't feel like that. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's worse things in the world. Or- yeah. I think, I think part of it was grit, you know, like just like having done difficult things for long periods of time yeah. in the past. Like I think also part of it was acceptance, like letting go of the value of a sign to emotions. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think um, part of it also was just like a, a strong commitment that like my model in the past was like, I, I don't want to be like my father versus this was part of the shift for me is like this is who I want to be and a strong commitment to that Mm. and a knowing that if I if I didn't stop compartmentalizing and learn to sit with my emotions that I was never going to be the person that I want to be how did you like was there like a uh this isn't working moment or sure okay yeah how many (laughs) 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 oh yeah yeah there was a definitely like Dang, this is like really getting in the way of my relationships with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is something Dr. Mike just, I, I mean, talks about and mentioned it. The underlying theme of high performance athletes is that they're trauma. Mm-hmm. How paradigm happened to that drive without introducing that trauma? Like, hey, kid, I'm gonna. I want you to be a high performing athlete, so I'm just gonna kick you in well, the face. Well, it depends on right the person, now, right? Some people are more or less sensitive to it, mm-hmm. so it depends. Probably, uh, you know, like, yeah, I, th- I think it's a, you know, I, th- I think it is highly dependent on the individual. I think a lot of it is creating space um, for someone to test themselves and to see what's taking place for them in moments of test. And then if you're really present with that person, you'll learn something about how they need to be coached in that moment. And you just as a we use coaching as a, a, a term, not in sport context, you can use it in any context, but just optimizing an interaction with someone. Mm. And if you think about the greatest coaches that you've ever been around, managers, parents, teachers, whatever, um, what's likely is that they just got you. They understood you in some mm-hmm. sort of way. And it's really hard to get a person if you if you don't create space for them and then just like be with them through it. And, mm. and learn some stuff. So Coach Carroll calls this learning the learner. You know, he, he'll put his athletes in situations to test them off the field in particular to see how they rise to that occasion or not um, because that's a lesson he learned early in his coaching career. So when you can just be present with people and learn what it's like for them as a learner, then you get some great information on how to um, how to work with them, you know. Um, and... 
when you can do that and it's more of a dynamic interaction versus a top-down interaction, then you get more feedback about what has impacted them and why they're showing up the way they are. And then you can help them move the needle in some sort of way if they're open to it. I think it's really important to have insight when you're working with people, if they're open to coaching or if they're open to moving the needle in some sort of way or if they're not ready for it. I think that nails it because for me, like since I'm not able to give myself a lot of grace, Mm -hmm. having a therapist that could Mm -hmm. and like put it on the table and just like, let's let's look at it. Like Mm -hmm. it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. Mm -hmm. And then go from there gave me a model of what it could look like to not judge it. And then, like, I'm starting to sort of kind of get mm-hmm. there yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that that, that rings, like, real mm-hmm. true for me. And and hopefully, like, for me, uh, for me, there's, like, there's a lot of light in that, you know? Like, um, there's, like, joy in that progress. Yeah. You know? And, and little pain. but then. A little but, pain, but a lot of Yeah, lot yeah, of light, yeah, yeah. But, like, it feels good, like, when you get it right. And then, like, you feel the moment of alignment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so alignment. That's yeah, like a huge. And, and, and that, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Like that's a huge. Yeah. Like, you can feel that shift yeah. of like. Yeah. I mean, I felt it in like some sports or some individual mm-hmm. thing, like a, a presentation or mm-hmm. a thing. But like feeling it in myself mm-hmm. is like is is cool. Mm-hmm. It's like I want more. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird but good. Oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. awesome. Weird good. And you, then you want more. Yeah. Time. <laughs> Drug. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, who's into drugs? Uh, all of us, actually. <laughs> Our brains make them, by the way. So, yep, yeah. Yep, good stuff. We're all big drug addicts. Yep. So, more in common. You just learned that. More in common. We, we all love drugs. <laughs> see what you Serotonin, did there. <laughs> that's a good yeah, plug. That, that, that's, a good, that's, a good, that's a good level set right there. How is it um, talking about this stuff? Like, you seem so really open to share the stories but like how is that for you i think in the beginning i just shared because to be honest like i would say i would share this stuff with some friends and they would like look at me kind of deer in headlights and not really react and i i've recently learned that they were like i was like blown away by what you were sharing but you seem so like you know like I think part of glacier. it I think part of it too is like I've just in the last couple of years realized that the trauma I experienced was trauma. Yeah. Through reading yeah. through reading research yeah. on early childhood trauma. I was like, wait, I've experienced that. <laughs> I've experienced that. Have you read Drama I've, of the Gifted Child? No. Read it. Oh thanks. You're throwing a book recommendation like, at me. It. I like that. That shit blew my mind. Really? Yeah. Will you text that to me? Yep. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think part of it is that, like, for a long time until I actually dove into the research, I didn't realize that what I experienced is technically called trauma. I also think because I, I've just had, I've lived such a good life, you know, I had all this success and achievement or whatever that, like, I, I think I just disconnected from it, you know. So I share now openly because um, I've seen the impact that it has on people when I share, you know, and um, trauma is way more prevalent than we think and uh the driving thought for me always when i go into a situation is like what what kind of ripple effect can this make and so i'll share anything if there's a potential impact that is lasting for for someone how do you how do you look at trauma is one of those things as we've gone through a lot of work Mm -hmm. over the last year a lot of trauma a lot of uncovering of what trauma manifests Mm -hmm. or how it manifests Mm -hmm. everybody Mm -hmm. 
comparison to mm-hmm. like I can I can call what you went through trauma, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it traumatic. Doesn't make it traumatic, mm-hmm. or because I didn't go through that, what I went through less traumatic. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you look at trauma, especially when you're helping other people? I'm not there yet with helping others reconcile their own trauma. Um, that will be a focus of mine in my doctorate program. But uh, I, th- I think creating space like you were talking about, like your therapist has done for you, um, because there is a risk of re-traumatization. And there is a trap in thinking that there's such God, a thing. You're going to love that book. There's such a thing <laughs> as like a big T trauma, which is how we used to think of it. Like there were these extreme um, experiences of trauma. And neglecting the cumulative effect of what used to be called like a little T trauma. So um, Dr. Vander Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, is a great book um, mm. on trauma. And he's one of yes. one of the foremost expert, ex- out experts. we're recording them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> on trauma. And I, so I've learned a ton about trauma from reading his work. Um, you know Dr. Gabor Mate? Yeah. Of him yeah that's where i got drama they give to child uh-huh. and then he does a lot on trauma mm-hmm. like his trauma of his mom mm-hmm. giving him up mm-hmm. in poland to mm-hmm. save him from the nazis yeah but he experienced it he's a very sensitive individual very sensitive child and he experienced it as his mother abandoning him yep. and it's gone into his issues with uh Att- substance attach- abuse attachment, and attachment also, all that kind right, of stuff yeah. but like for some people they'd have been like oh yeah i get it like yeah Cool. It wasn't. It wouldn't. What a great thing she did for me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can hold both, right? Like also. So it's like, um, which which is you know, like I think that's part of part of the reason um, I've been so resilient through it is that I've never taken the lens of like the victim through the situation, Um, and no judgment in that. You know, like I just have always um, found a way to attribute what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I, oh, that was part of the, I am not depressed. I I, I, I have, have depression. depression. It was like all of the things that show up in our lives have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, like um, neuroticism, like mm-hmm. it's not necessarily bad. bad. Mm-hmm. Like everything that shows up served a purpose at some point. It pr- right. kept us safe. It protected us. Mm-hmm. It's just understanding it. And like w- when uh, this kind of like. Everything you just said to us, yeah, like <laughs> understanding. <it. laughs> I'm getting it. Like light bulb just went off. Being aware of it and then accepting its function. Right? Yeah. If I mean, you're aware really of it, it comes and then down you accept it, though, it right? yeah. because you sat with it. Being yeah. aware. Of it. <laughs> rather than rather than I mean, we have the tendency to take these social constructs and say they're negative. Mm-hmm. By mental health, or mm-hmm. well, I think that hurts with the external validation thing. Yeah. Like thinking about the prison system, it's like. We have this idea in American culture, anyway, that like if you do a crime, you 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 pay for it, mm-hmm. and then you're back. But that's not the way it actually works mm-hmm. if you're a criminal, and then but also in other areas mm-hmm. as well. So like, I think that hurts with the external validation, like for some people, mm-hmm. because they're actually literally being punished externally for that still. Mm-hmm. Right. All of those. Unless mm-hmm. they've sat with it. Had and awareness aware of, it, of it and, accepted and then it. accepted it, right. <laughs> <laughs> which which they may have because they've had a lot of time to sit with it. Like when you think about neuroses, like what is its function in my life? How has it been positive? Mm-hmm. 
then accepting its positive nature, mm-hmm. not letting it take mm-hmm. you too far. Yeah. And understanding that that's not just who we are, for example, you know, it's like a thing in there. It, it is a part of our makeup in some sort of way. And it served a purpose for um, whatever reason. And it may or may not be serving a purpose now. And that just because that's how you were in the past doesn't mean that change is not possible in most situations, you know. Uh, I think what's tough about mental health is like, and with the stigma around it is it's actually more normal than it is abnormal. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is part of the human experience to experience depression, for example, mm-hmm. or anxiety. Um, and when we stigmatize it or vilify it, that it's just making it more difficult for all of us to, to have the full range of experience as a human being, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, how do we know love and joy if we don't dip into the other side of it, you know? But if we're so averse or trying to avoid it all of the time, then, like, what is what is the nature of our joy and happiness, you know? Like, I heard someone say that, uh, like, cultures cultures that don't have issues with bo- body shape, mm-hmm. they don't have eating disorders. That's right. Yep. So there, there are some disorders that are culturally bound. And other disorders manifest themselves differently culturally. So, so the bootstrap mm-hmm. conversation. So mm-hmm. meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Sport is one of the places where meritocracy actually works. Mm-hmm. Maybe some organizations, if they have a lot of good procedures in place. But in society, mm-hmm. well, that's a leading question. I don't want to lead <laughs> you. How do you feel about meritocracy outside of sport? Mm-hmm. Let me ask it like that. Again, out- outcomes matter. And uh, they make the world go round, you know. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know how to conceptualize our world with without it. Mm. Um, I think there are huge traps to it. Um, and then I think, in terms of what it does to the psychology of people, is it just it it feeds into limiting beliefs. Um, and so. What I would say to that, and I'm quoting Kobe Bryant, is that you always have to protect your dreams. Mm. Um, Because as we become more, uh, as we grow up, um, we become, our dreams become more responsible. And um, part part of that is because of meritocracy, because the, there's, there's an understanding of that we're only capable of so much and that we can only rise so, um, high. To so, so high, you know? Um, and so, but we'll, we'll never know what is actually possible for us if, if we don't protect our dreams. And is that from a psychological standpoint, making holding space for yourself uh, and your, your dreams? I, I think it's more about being optimistic. I think it's more about, um, setting a vision for yourself, mm. uh, which is a little, little different than a goal, um, but, you know, something that has deep meaning for you because it's worth pursuing. And when things don't work out, you know, that you'll, you'll stay on the vein of improvement for whatever that is. Um, I think that falls more into, like, hope uh, as well, you know. Um, and then at the end of the day, like, we're all going to experience setbacks. Um, mm. And it, it's how you respond that matters more than anything. Last question, brother. We always leave, ask our guests to leave 
a, a pearl of wisdom for the listeners. You haven't left enough. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we want one more. Mm. This is often something I talk about, but I, I think we don't get the mechanics of confidence right um, in the United States. We don't teach it. And I think um, especially now we're in this, this uh, in our, at least in our culture, in our country, the model of like be, be more to do more, you know, and this is a Dr. Mike kind of thought, but uh, the model's broken. And so w- everything we have is already within us. And um, if we can anchor more to the idea that like when things don't go as planned that I can adjust and do work to be able to have great skill at adjusting rather than the incessant need to prepare and to be perfect that we'll probably like perform better. We'll feel more alignment, but there's a lot of, a lot more joy in the experience. Um, so for me, like the skill of adjusting is one of the greatest things that um, I've ever been gifted.